Hello and welcome to episode 100 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. We are covering the events of April 2022 and we've got some pretty major asylum stuff to go over and then we've got quite a few different fairly disparate topics um, including compensation for unlawful removal, the unending saga of the English language test scandal, new immigration fees, changes to work visas, a big case from the upper tribunal on expert evidence and a rather unusual slightly esoteric set of facts on a deportation case in the Court of Appeal. I am joined by my colleague CJ McKinney and CJ over to you. Thanks Colin. Uh, I would like to first acknowledge 100th episode was very exciting. Uh, I went back to episode one uh, back in 2014 to see if I could take an, an excerpt uh, that sounded hilariously different or really rough uh, compared to episode 100 um, but actually it was largely the same except it was just you rather than you and me. Hello and welcome to the January 2014 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and today I'll be covering a range of subjects including home office litigation delays, um, a few tribunal determinations and also a couple of very important European cases. So uh, you've been remarkably consistent over 100 episodes, I think. Yeah, consistently. uh, Yeah, I'm not sure. Consistent. I think let's just stick with consistent. Uh, well, people tell us they like the podcast, uh, so we'll continue to do them uh, for perhaps 100 episodes more. But if you've got any feedback, uh, we'd love to hear it. Email in at editor at freemovement.org.uk. So on with the episode, we will start with the latest on TOEIC or ETS cases. This is the extremely long running fallout from revelations of cheating on English language tests that was uncovered back in 2014, back when you founded the podcast. People were stripped of their immigration status on the basis that they were among those who used corrupt exam centres and there's still appeals running on in the first year tribunal. The argument is often that the voice recognition evidence showing that it's not them taking the test and that they cheated. Uh, The argument is that that evidence is flawed fundamentally and a report by a group of MPs which was published in July 2019, agreed with that assessment, basically saying that the whole thing is not fit for purpose. So the upper tribunal has now examined the expert evidence from that July 2019 report, which was by the all-party parliamentary group on TOEIC. And the tribunal takes a very different view on the significance of that evidence. Basically, what the, the experts told MPs didn't, in the tribunal's view, undermine the integrity of the voice recognition data. Uh, really, all they said was, well, you know, they could have done it better. There's a different way you could have done this that would have been more secure and more reliable, but not didn't, the judges said, point to anything fundamentally wrong. So they, the judgment says, quote, the voice recognition process is clearly and overwhelmingly reliable in pointing to an individual test entry as the product of a repeated voice. By overwhelmingly reliable, we do not mean conclusive, but in general, there is no reason to doubt the result of the analysis, end quote. So basically, if you want to argue, no, there's been a mistake here, I didn't cheat, you need to have some sort of evidence of that and not just go in and say, oh, this whole process is flawed and unreliable. So in that case, DK and RK, ETS, SSHD Evidence, Proof, India, 2022 UKUT112IAC. Yeah, hard to believe this is the end of the story, isn't it? It's uh, it's like the kind of um, the, the history that you, you just got over does suggest that there might be met yet more. I mean, we'll, we'll probably still be 
talking about this in episode 200 or something like you say um but it is rather difficult to imagine what evidence anybody could produce so yeah the tribunal here is saying uh this is not conclusive and, and yet that is kind of the effect of what they're saying really because it's rather difficult to imagine what evidence somebody could potentially produce given the process that's involved here that might call it into question so it does seem to be you know basically saying to people that yeah so some of you might not have cheated but basically tough that, that that's the sort of bottom line here yeah the tribunal also said that some of the previous judgments the previous litigation uh, in this saga over the years were in fact wrong in particular they single out the judgment in Muhandaramje uh, 2015 UKUT 675 IAC that was basically wrongly decided and that was a judgment by the former president of the upper immigration tribunal bernard mccluskey who's now on the court of appeal in northern ireland and i think that's something we've seen quite a lot of colin under president lane unpicking quite a number of his predecessors decisions yeah i'm mccluskey judgment yeah basically the former president is not popular with the current uh, management of the upper tribunal should we say um and um yeah that 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 case you mentioned it's the boomerang well one of the boomerang of proof ones that uh, were i think gently mocked at the time let's talk then about damages for unlawful removal this case really tragic it it involved a 16 year old afghan boy who was originally assessed on arrival in the uk as aged aged 19 he was sent to germany under the dublin removal system within the eu pre-brexit when he was being prepared for removal he was detained and he was notified of a window of time in which he could be removed which began the very next day rather than five days after notification of removal as Home Office policy required, so that was unlawful. He was eventually brought back to the UK, but only after one year and eight months in Germany, which caused the, quote, troubled and distressed, end quote, teenager, uh, an awful lot of mental anguish and, and hardship. The upper tribunal originally held that he nevertheless couldn't claim damages under the Human Rights Act or under EU law for the unlawful removal. But the Court of Appeal says uh, he can, in fact, uh, the amount of damages is is TBD in the county court. But the principle has been decided and the judgment is QH Afghanistan 2022 EWCA Civ 421. So, Colin, is this a significant development when it comes to compensation in circumstances like this? Or is it just the tribunal got it wrong in the individual case? The Court of Appeal puts it right. Yeah, it, it does look like quite a, a significant decision. And it, and in some ways, it's not, wouldn't want to be too critical of the tribunal for in, in this particular case, unlike some other cases, uh, for for the, the decision that they've reached, because it's, it's quite a big deal, Frankovich damages. Um, and obviously, the facts of this case are, are really awful. Um, but the legal issues are, are pretty complicated. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's good to see this happening. And that Reading the comments about the Home Office submissions and case here is is quite it's quite stark. I, you know, the Home Office was basically blaming the lawyers and the appellant for not having stopped his removal in the first place or having gotten him brought back to the UK sooner. 
and and yeah, the the judge is gives that really short shrift, um, quite rightly. Um, and I think it's you know this is it's an example of pretty dysfunctional decision making by the Home Office, where somebody is being bundled out of the country without basic procedural safeguards. And this kind of stuff is really worrying when it comes to you know stuff like the the Rwanda deal and what's going to happen to people with that. So it's um you know it's, it's a good case, welcome outcome, but the the facts are really awful. Yeah, we'll come on to Rwanda later in the podcast. Let's just mention briefly uh, fees for immigration applications, visas, citizenship, etc. They went up, as usual, at the start of April, uh, but only by £15 across the board, which is, uh, or for most applications, no rise for others. And 15 quid is a good bit less than inflation in, in most cases, at least. Fees had been flat in the past few years as well, um, but there had in the last few years been rises in the immigration health surcharge. So the overall cost of applications, fees plus surcharge, um, had increased massively, um, even if the, the headline fee stayed the same. And then before that, there were massive rises in the rate of the headline fees. So actually, this year is probably the first time in many, many years, the costs haven't risen significantly in one way or another, or at least not risen above inflation, uh, which is something to celebrate, perhaps. Uh, although, obviously, the fundamentally, the application costs are really, really high at this point. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's all welcome. And it, it is a slight increase, but it's not a really substantial one like we were seeing in, in previous years. It does make me wonder why the fees were pushed up so high and so fast previously, if they were then going to be held down for for quite so many years, because you know it's well below inflation, like you say, I call very disappointing not to see citizenship fees, particularly for children, um, substantially reduced. They're, they're being held at the, the same rate, and there's nothing that I've seen, no suggestion anywhere that I've seen that the um, the Home Office has carried out the best interest assessment that it's supposed to on those child registration fees of over a thousand pounds. So, you know, this would have been an opportunity to do something about that, to change the fee, to reduce it. But that's an opportunity that has not been taken by the Home Office. So overall, you know, it's it's not as bad as it might be, I suppose. But yeah, that, as you say, it's not to say that these aren't really exorbitant fees still. Asylum then, and we'll talk about Rwanda in this context. We did do an entire episode on Rwanda the other week, so we won't spend too long on that topic. But um Colin, I'll put to you my general question that I put to John and Sonia when we spoke, which was, are we actually going to see asylum seekers sent to Rwanda or is the plan going to fall apart in the face of legal and logistical difficulties? People seem to have different views on this. I don't know. It's it's really hard to to predict. Oh, it's impossible to predict, I think, is is the truth. I mean, my my best guess, which is is just it's instinct, I suppose. You know, I haven't got really got any evidence to support this particularly. But my best guess is that some people are going to face removal to Rwanda. Probably not very many people. Um, but I think you know the government has just put so much um, sort of political capital into this that I, I can see them forcing a few people onto a plane to Rwanda at some point. And I've got no doubt that there will be legal challenges, but. Um, 
you know, I think I think probably we will see a handful of people being removed, but it, it, it might be a very long time before that happens um, because any legal challenges will be substantive. They won't necessarily ultimately succeed. Um, you know, I, I'm not not convinced necessarily that um, that legal challenges will ultimately succeed, uh, at least for some people. And you know, this issue of legality. It is a really complicated one in in some ways. So the Refugee Convention doesn't necessarily help people, but what might help people is is human rights law, depending on what evidence there is of what's going on in Rwanda. And you know, since this blog post went out, we've seen a bit more detail about what the Rwandan asylum process looks like, um, which which is not encouraging, to put it mildly. So. Yeah, I, it, I, my guess is that a few people are going to end up on a on a plane at some point, but not substantial numbers. And there's going to be, you know, an almighty legal fight about it. One thing that was overlooked during the Rwanda announcement, although not by us, was that uh, when the prime minister was making the speech announcing it just before Easter, he simultaneously said, sort of in passing, that the plan to physically intercept migrant boats in the English Channel would be abandoned. Uh, this is the whole border force jet skis thing. And uh, Colin, you get points for correctly predicting that this would never happen. And the abandonment of that uh, policy means that legal action against it has been settled. Whether there's a direct connection between the litigation and the abandonment of the policy, I don't know. And um, there has been a couple of preliminary judgments from the high court on this litigation uh, jed pennington has written that up probably not as interesting as they would be if the case hadn't settled and the policy abandoned but uh, we, we didn't know that when we started writing them up uh, so i think jed's article perhaps serves to mark the unlamented demise of the pushbacks policy yeah i, I there's just so much against the pushbacks policy i thought um, at the time that I, you know, I, I felt a fairly safe bet that it wasn't going to happen. And I've, I've got mixed feelings about the litigation. I personally don't think the litigation is really why it was withdrawn. I think it was just a completely impossible, impractical policy right from the start. And the government loves losing in court. You know, they, they love being able to blame the judges and blame the activist lawyers and all this kind of stuff. Um, so I think the idea that it was withdrawn because of the 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 prospect of losing in court is um it, it just isn't really very realistic to be honest but you know i don't think that the rwanda policy is quite so impossible and unrealistic as the pushbacks policy was so um you know i, I i'm not i'm not willing to make the same prediction about it never happening um for that one also in asylum type stuff there's an interesting judicial review case having to do with an Afghan judge who was in hiding from the Taliban. He was refused permission to come to the UK under the Arab scheme. So he applied for leave outside the immigration rules on the basis of compelling compassionate circumstances. The Home Office said, okay, you can submit your biometric data, your fingerprints and passport for the application. Uh, You can do that in Pakistan. But he understandably felt that traveling to Pakistan was itself risky. And he's not going to leave hiding until to go and and lodge the formal application in Pakistan unless he first has a decision in principle that he'll be granted the visa. So he wanted the Home Office to decide his leave outside the rules application first. And then if they granted it, that would be conditional on him later submitting his fingerprints, etc. in Pakistan, whereas normally that comes first and, and you can't reverse the steps. 
This is Justice Levin made an interim relief order that the Home Office should make an in-principle decision on leave outside the rules as he wanted. Um, she said that uh, the need to establish his identity first, which is the purpose of biometrics, didn't really apply in this case because he's very well known to the Home Office. Uh, the circumstances are pretty unusual. Uh, he's not going to be able to reapply in a different guise if, if refused. So it was just interesting, Colin. You don't often see litigation around entry clearance gain much traction. It seems to have been some pretty creative and effective lawyering. Um, the case JZ 2022, EWHC 771 admin. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting one. Right? It's a pretty unusual one as well. Um, so you know, I, I don't think there's much that's going to change sort of in the wider wider world because of this one. This is an unusual set of facts. But it, it highlights the the nonsense behind the whole home office line about safe and legal routes. You know, you should um, a- apply for a visa by coming out of hiding, crossing, I think, illegally into Pakistan on the off chance that we might grant you uh, a visa outside the rules where you've got absolutely no notion really of whether you might succeed or not. That is not you know, certainly not safe. Um, it's not a safe route, is it? Um, but the, um, yeah, I, th- I think the Home Office objections to this would have maybe made a bit more sense if he had a better idea of whether he might meet the rules or not, because he was. This was an application outside the rules, so he, you know, he hadn't. He had no way of making an informed guess of whether the application might succeed. So his point was, you know, how can it possibly be reasonable in those circumstances for me to take all of these chances? Um, whereas, you know, if he had on the face of it qualified for, uh, uh, under some set of criteria, then. You, the, the Home Office points might have been a bit more sort of sensible, but um, it ju- they just seem to bear no relation to the to the facts of this case, and and that's you know, ultimately what the what the judge said. So good good outcome. Yeah, pragmatic decision, I think. Let's move to the points based immigration system, and the new global business mobility routes went live in April. Ross Kennedy took a look at one of those routes, the UK expansion worker visa, and after like-for-like replacement for the old sole rep visa. So if you are a company with no trading presence in the UK, then you can send an executive in to get a UK subsidiary off the ground. Under UK Expansion Worker, you can now send in up to five such employees at a time rather than just a sole representative, uh, which is good. But otherwise, Ross says that the new route, uh, replacement route is more cumbersome. Uh, You need to get a sponsor license. Your company already needs to have what the guidance calls a footprint in the UK, such as company's house registration or business premises. Uh, You didn't need that before. Um, You also need to provide evidence of overseas trading for three years rather than one year and various other paperwork and bureaucracy that's sort of increased compared to sole rep. So overall, faffier than before, which uh, seems like a shame. I feel like there should be some sort of meme for how the Home Office sort of reacts to a, a broken aspect of the immigration system. So, you know, you get this report um, from the Migration Advisory Committee saying that this is broken, doesn't work, needs fixing, and the Home Office makes it worse. Um, and it just kind of, it's just, there's, there's no aspect of the immigration system that the Home Office isn't capable of making worse than it already was, and it was already really bad. And this is, you know, this may be another one. But the other thing that sort of came to mind is that it's an interesting example of this with 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 some types of visas. It's they're, they're led by the 
the people they're led by the people who need the visas or the you know the british citizen family members or whatever and work visas aren't quite like that they're kind of you know it's the home office trying to design things to meet a need in the or a perceived need in the economy and then the lawyers trying to fit actual real life into those you know sort of fit the uh, sort of shoehorn people in and it's um it's a, there's a real mismatch there and that's that that perhaps explains partly what's going on here the home office is trying to kind of with all their vast experience in the civil servants of of um you know private enterprise and uh, economic expansion and, and all that kind of stuff and obviously that's, that's maybe the sarcasm's not quite plain in, in, my, in my sort of dead tone delivery there and and um, and just getting it wrong ultimately so that actually it's not meeting any kind of need at all but we'll we'll keep an eye on this and see how many actual applications there are i would expect there to be very few to start with with the new routes as ross says in the write-up but you'd expect it to increase over time the migration advisory committee has published its final report on social care they had previously released a sort of interim finding that led to frontline social care workers being allowed to get skilled worker visas. That's been in place for a few months now. They've now released their final report and they say that um, basically that's enough. Um, Broadly, there shouldn't be any further liberalisation of visa rules for these specific workers, um, but that there should be a higher minimum wage in the social care sector, which would just mechanically mean that more care workers qualify for the skilled worker route because they'd be over the minimum salary threshold. Uh, They do recommend some other tweaks, including abolishing or reducing settlement fees for people who spend their full five years on the skilled worker route working in social care. So potentially some more good news for that sector if the government does take the committee up on those recommendations. Yeah, there surely is a meme for this one, though, where you've got the the option between increasing, um, you know, minimum wage and workers' conditions and so on, or loosening visa restrictions for, for sort of low-skilled work. And, and repeatedly, the Home Office goes for loosening um, visa restrictions for low-skilled work. But um, yeah, well, let's hope, let's hope they, they do take a slightly more long-term approach with this one. Turning to the immigration tribunals and upper tribunal, President Lane has come out with a new judgment on the role of expert witnesses. The witness in this case was a psychiatrist who had produced a report saying the appellant was at very high risk of suicide if removed back to Sri Lanka. The Home Office instructed its own experts and a QC actually to argue the case in the tribunal and persuaded the judges that there were quote unquote serious problems with the appellant's expert. He was found to be frequently behaving as befitted an advocate rather than an impartial expert and, and various other really quite trenchant criticisms. The uh, president goes on to give some general guidance, sort of reiterating the duty that expert witnesses have to the court in terms of being partial and not just trying to win the case for their side um, or for the side that's instructed them. Um, he says... In all cases in which expert evidence is adduced, the tribunal should be scrupulous in ensuring that the expert has not merely recited their obligations at the beginning or end of their report, but has actually complied with them in substance. So the tribunal taking aim at partisan, if you like, expert reports, an important case to read, I think, and Ian's reflections on it in his article are also really helpful. Uh, The case citation is HA Expert Evidence Mental Health Sri Lanka. 2022 UKUT 111 IAC and Ian's article is headlined What are the duties of an expert witness in the immigration tribunal? 
Yeah, it, it's it's a really important decision. I think likely to be cited, um, particularly by the Home Office, quite often in in tribunal proceedings going forward, because you know they you see these refusal letters and hoppo submissions where they're they're sort of dredging through years and years of um, court of appeal and upper tribunal case law on on expert evidence, so sort of cherry pick the best bits as far as they're concerned. Well, this 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 will re- be able to replace all of that for uh, for the Home Office puts it all nicely in one place and you know it, there's, there's no doubt that um, you know you do have to be careful about um, expert evidence and that the duties of an expert are very important and sometimes experts don't seem to sort of take it entirely um, seriously and and it's not ideal that this case concerns somebody who I think had been suspended from practice basically for plagiarism, um, which is, you know, not not a great thing to have, have happened to somebody um, for them then to be holding themselves out as, a, as an expert, particularly without without mentioning that, which was the, the problem here. So yeah, it, it's an important decision. It's really important that um, practitioners are aware of it. And there's a really useful section at the end um, from Ian on things to think about and um, ways to try and minimize problems and how to properly instruct an expert to make sure that they are aware of their duties and and, and so on. So um, yeah, do do take a look at that. Finally, then a very unusual deportation case involving a British citizen with a conviction for murder. Sajid Zulfikar was a dual national, British and Pakistani, but he renounced his British citizenship, rarely a good idea, uh, with a view to being transferred to Pakistan to serve out his sentence. I think the idea was that he would be physically closer to his father, who, who's living in Pakistan. And there are schemes for foreign nationals to serve out sentences handed down by UK courts in their home country. But in the event, he was refused the prison transfer. So he stayed in prison in the UK. He then got married uh, somehow while still in prison. Uh, so he then wanted to stay on in the UK after release uh, to be with his wife. But he now had no British citizenship because he'd renounced it to try and get to Pakistan. So uh, the Home Office was entitled to deport him. And the Court of Appeal has upheld that deportation decision. It said that Mr. Zulfikar does count as a foreign criminal, quote unquote, for the purposes of deportation law, uh, because he was a foreign national at the point of the deportation order, years and years after the conviction. And even if at the point where he was convicted and sentenced, he was actually a British citizen. Uh, still a foreign criminal. So uh, the case Zulfikar 2022 EWCA 492. And I don't know if this one will be cited much in future, Colin, given how wildly unusual those facts are. Yeah, it is pretty unusual, isn't it? And it and you know, before say anything else, and this is such a big deal for this guy. You know, he's born British, born in the UK, lived here all his life, and he's going to be deported to a country that he's got a kind of technical uh, should we say nationality law connection because of his parents um so this is a really big deal for him but it's like you said the the renouncing your citizenship it and it it you know in hindsight looks a bit kind of wily coyote in in terms of um you know shooting yourself in the foot or or, or, or whatever um so it wasn't wasn't in hindsight the best idea particularly as it didn't actually have the outcome that he'd wanted, which was transfer to, to serve his sentence in, in Pakistan to be close to his father. So no, this, is a, this is a big deal for him. And and I suppose it um, might have significance because the, the appellant relied on the Akinyemi case, which is um, somebody who had been born in the UK, lived here all his life, never left, 
but was never British. Um, he'd missed out on British citizenship by a few months, I think, because of um, his his date of birth after the commencement of the the British Nationality Act, nineteen eighty one. And Akinyemi is is certainly a case that will get cited in deportation cases in future. So the fact that this sort of goes the other way to some extent perhaps means that it it, it might end up being something that the Home Office try to rely on in some cases. But you know, it, it is. Exactly the same facts are unlikely to arise in future, I'd have thought. Right, I think that wraps up for this month. So um, that's it from us. We hope that was helpful and we'll be back next month. Goodbye. Goodbye.